Amen. Thank you, Carter family, and good morning. My name's Eric Barton, and I want to wish you all in advance a very Merry Christmas and an awesome Advent. We are in the season of Advent where we commemorate, celebrate, and contemplate the first coming of Christ. And there's so many other things that are competing and vying for your attention and your affection. So many ploys and plans and plots to get your mind, your heart, away from the glory and the grandeur that Christ is come. I've talked to a lot of people, and despite all that's going on in our world with this, that, or the other, the word that I hear more and more and more in the Advent season is, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I've got to prepare all these things. I've got to prepare all those things. I've got to prepare. People are coming to my house, as Matt said earlier, and I have to make them believe that I'm actually more tidy than I really am, and I've got to do all these preparations. Well, this morning, as we are in the final Sunday before we celebrate Advent, I want to talk about preparations. Christmas is that wonderful and yet sometimes very difficult and heavy time. For many of us, it's hot cocoa and the smell of cinnamon and hugs and bright decorations and little boys wearing their father's robes in a shepherd's pageant play kind of thing. But for others, it's also a time of intense sadness and grief and longing and a lack of fulfillment. And we recognize that. We don't want to turn a blind eye to that. There is a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt, sadness, perhaps even shame. Wherever you fit, Wherever you are, this message is for you. So I'm going to pray yet again. You might be thinking, wait a minute, we've already prayed like too many times this morning. No, we haven't. We're going to talk to God, and we're going to be heard by God. You see, because that's the gospel. We get to, to think and feel and speak, and he hears, and he heeds, and he heals. So let's pray. Father in heaven, drawn near by the coming of your Son. You've sent your Spirit to indwell these, your people. There is exhilaration and anticipation for gifts. Help us to look back to the gift, and may we be confounded all over again by the glory of the coming of your Son, Jesus, into our midst and into our mess. We do pray, Father, for those who are sorrowful, this morning in this season, that you, the God of all comfort, would do precisely that. For the rest of us, Father, would you increase our capacity to comprehend the Christ this Christmas season? Would you do that? Really? I pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the struggles at Christmas is that all of us take our eye off the enormity of the coming of the Christ. And so many messages barrage us, trying to make our thinking and our feeling about Jesus just a little smaller, just a little smaller, that we'll begin to think of Jesus right in line with Rudolph and Frosty. But no, he is the very son of God. He who has proceeded from the Father, the expression and the extension of his love for all eternity. So this morning, the gift I would give to all of us, whether you're here on the third floor, down on the second floor, or the first floor, or watching remotely, the gift I would give to all of us is that we would think rightly about Jesus. And so that leads to our big idea. It goes like this. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. 
Not some derivative, distilled, sort of watered-down, user-friendly Jesus. No, Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. And so with that, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We began the Advent season way back on November 28th, and we looked at the gift that was to the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. Then we talked about the shepherds from Luke chapter 2. This morning, we're going to look at the life and the Annunciation to Mary. The Annunciation for all of church history has to do with the announcement from heaven by God through an angel to Mary. So if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, now we don't want to just parachute right into the passage without actually understanding a little bit of a backdrop and some context. In the sixth month, what's going on? The gospel of Luke opens with Dr. Luke explaining that a miracle has happened because we're continuing on the theme of the Old Testament where there has been barrenness, there has been death, but God brings life. There's a priest named Zechariah, and he's married to a woman named Elizabeth, and they're righteous people, but they're barren. They are experiencing a living death. And an angel comes to Zechariah while he is ministering in the temple. He says, Zechariah, we have heard you. You're nobody special, but you're somebody special because God has heard you. You will conceive and you will have a child. And Zechariah says, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, hello, I'm old and wrinkly. And the angel says, you know what? That's about enough out of you. And strikes him mute for the next nine months. And Elizabeth does, in fact, conceive, perhaps because for the first time in a long time, Zechariah was not speaking much. <laughs> Elizabeth hides herself away for some five months, which now takes us to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. Now, this is amazing. Nazareth is a backwater. It is the sticks. It's somewhere between Arp and Winona. It's just like, you, no, no, no. The throne room of God has no care nor concept nor concern for Nazareth. But it's an amazing passage. The angel Gabriel, one of the archangels, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. There's nothing there. It's just in the hills. It is a banjo-plucking kind of village. Not a lot going on there. Two, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In those days, fathers met and they had great negotiations. They negotiated a bride price. This young girl is probably 14, maybe 15 years old. All of the negotiations between the fathers have happened. Mary is effectively betrothed, that is, married to be married to Joseph, but it's more formal, more structured than that. Everybody in Nazareth knows that this 15-year-old girl is off the market. She belongs to Joseph. All that is being waited upon is for Joseph's father to say, now it's time. Joseph has been preparing a place for his bride. Everybody knows this, and yet God sends this angel to Mary, and let me be as delicate as I possibly can, She's nobody. I love this passage so very much. She's nobody. She's a maiden, a 15-year-old girl in the backwater of northern Israel. 
angels don't visit nobodies. Angels visit dignitaries. They visit politicians and the wealthy and the powerful and the influential. She's nobody. If you happen to be into video games like all of our elders are, these video games all have what's called NPCs, non-player characters. They're just in the background. They just sort of fill up pixelated space. They're nobody. Mary is an NPC on the world stage. She's nobody from nowhere. And God is acutely aware of every facet and detail of her existence. And he sends his angel Gabriel to her. Her name was Mary. And he came to her and said, this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. This is a prestigious greeting from an archangel of God who has been in the throne room of Yahweh for countless eons, and he comes to this non-player character, nobody, in the backwaters of Nazareth in northern Israel, and he says, greetings, O favored one. This is how Herod would have greeted Caesar. This kind of greeting is reserved for illuminaries and dignitaries and the wealthy and the powerful, and the angel, who is an amazingly awesome being, says, greetings, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you can discern it or not, whether you can fully grasp and comprehend it or not, the Lord is with you. It's an amazing statement. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, do you think? Because she's never even done something as exciting as play kickball in Nazareth. And suddenly there's the angel of the Lord who says, you have found favor with God and he is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern. She reasoned it out. She logizothied. She tried to make head or tail of what was going on, what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. You know why? Because she was terrified. She's nobody from nowhere. And God saw her, and God spoke to her through a messenger. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And Mary's saying, what did I do? What did I do? How come? And the angels, no reason. That's just the kind of God that I serve. He loves nobodies from nowhere. He loves them. He's got your picture on his fridge, Mary. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Then as now, parents always get to name their child, but not in this case because the child that will be born is infinite eons older than her earthly parents. He is named Jesus. God saves. The salvation of God is actually in the form of an individual human being, a person. God's salvation is a person, and he's going to come to the world, Mary, through you. And then Gabriel's going to give us five things that this Jesus is. Five things, because Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. Well, who is he? We want to think rightly about this Jesus. And it's good to get the opinion of heaven. It's good to get the synopsis from the archangel Gabriel, the message, the messenger of the throne room of God. This is who he says. <laughs> and I want you to imagine this. As he's talking about his creator, the one who spoke a word and Gabriel came into existence. Oh, he's going to take human form, Mary, and he's going to come from you. Let me tell you about him. Here's five things. He will be great. Oh, he's going to be relatively insignificant and in, in, uh, unknown, obscure. 
He's going to be born in Bethlehem and he's not going to have a huge following. There will be no buildings named after him when he's gone. He will not amass any fortune, not a whole lot of great global notoriety, but he will be great. In fact, Mary, he's going to redefine what greatness is. He will lay down his life for those undeserving that he loves. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. This does not mean the offspring of the Most High. In antiquity, to say that someone is the son of something means that they are the exact replica. This is Gabriel saying to Mary, Mary, you're going to birth God. He is divine. He is deity. He's not an angel like me, Mary. He is the exact stuff of El Elyon, the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, Mary, You know the prophecies. You know the stories. A thousand years ago, Mary, God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, you will have an heir ruling on the throne forever. Mary, it's your boy. It's him. It's finally happened. Oh, I know it took a thousand years, Mary, but it's time. It's him. He will have the throne of David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no midterm election. There will be no recall. There will be no vote of confidence. There will be no term limits because he is the God-man. He will reign in righteousness forever and ever. And of his kingdom, Mary, there will be no end. Now this plucked all five strings on the cord. Every young girl in Israel at this time knew enough of their Old Testament, enough of their Bible to think and wonder, Will the Messiah come from me? Will the Messiah come from me? And this nobody from nowhere is told by the messenger of God himself, Mary, that's going to be your son. This is who Jesus is. See, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Continuing on, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, she's not asking like in the way that Zechariah asked. Zechariah was doubting in disbelief. He was a priest serving in the temple and an angel came to him and he still doubted. Mary's not disbelieving. She just doesn't understand. She knows enough about life and biology to know, hmm, I'm only betrothed. My husband has not yet come to collect me. How can this possibly be? And the angel answered her and he gives this wonderful explanation of one of the tenets of our faith here in verse 35 of the virgin birth. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And again, I want you to adopt for just a moment the mindset of Gabriel, who for countless eons experienced and observed from a slight distance this circular dance of community between the three members of the Godhead. And then he says, Mary... The second member, the son of God. He's amazing. You're, you're just not going to believe him. He's so awesome. He's so incredible. He's going to be born to you. And how's it going to happen? The third member of the Godhead, Trinity Mary, he's going to overshadow you. I can't explain it because I don't even understand it fully myself, Mary. But all of God is going to work in and through you because of the Most High, because of his love for this reckless, rebellious humanity. All of the trinities involved in this incredible incarnation of Christ. Mary, don't you see? It's just too much. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, this is the sign, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. This is the sign, Mary. You think this is crazy? Your cousin Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. 
She's also pregnant, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Always a good answer to God's word. May it be exactly as you have said, God, or even better, because that's the kind of God that you are. Now we're going to have a little bit of a transition in the narrative, some, some change in setting as we're continuing to complement or to comprehend this Advent season. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, we don't know what happens here. We don't know if Mary's father and mother sent her away, if she began to show. We don't know. We just know that she leaves in a hurry because I guess an angelic visitation will do that to you. And she goes in a hurry down to the southern parts in Judah, near Jerusalem. We know that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have lived at least near Jerusalem because he was a priest and served in the temple. So perhaps it was Bethlehem. We don't know exactly. But it's about a 90-mile journey, five or six days if she's really hoofing it. And she goes all the way down into the south, into the hill country of Judea, that is where Jerusalem is. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Something awesome is happening here. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Elizabeth just knows this is no ordinary pregnancy, just as hers was not. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She understands that her younger cousin Mary is carrying the Savior of the world. Why? Why would God honor me with this incredible grace, this blessing, this dignifying? Why would he be allowed to come to see me? I'm nobody from nowhere. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now we know that this baby in her womb is John the baptizer who will go forward. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Again, another great model for us to follow. Blessed are we when we believe the very words of God. And then we already heard this, right? I'm not gonna unpack this verse by verse because this is one of those songs, I confess, transparently, this is one of those songs that of all pieces of music that have ever been written and performed in the history of humankind, this is the song. This is the one I want to hear. I want to have heard. As Mary, filled with the Spirit, carrying the Savior of the world in her womb, miraculously, as she bursts forth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, listen to what she says. And Mary said, "'My soul magnifies the Lord.'" Little nobody from nowhere makes God bigger. Did you by any chance catch that? Look at your life. Look at your week. Look at your month. Look at, look at it. Do you know your thinking, your praise, your worship, your engagement with the truth of Christmas makes a bigger deal about God? And when we do that, all the angelic realm bursts forth because they cannot understand why we get grace. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I make much of Yahweh. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because of what God has done. Because of what God has said. Not because she's awesome, because she wasn't. Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
and holy is his name. Holy is his name does not merely mean moral and pure. It is the righteousness of God rolling forward. That's who he is. He's setting the world to rights and he's starting the campaign with a defenseless, vulnerable baby born to me. This God is something that he would even be aware of my existence, that he would care of my existence, that he would love me so much that he would bestow upon me this honor. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53 is so key. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary is not saying that God buys everybody a happy meal. It's way more than just having an appetite for food. Mary understands in the inspiration of the Spirit what God is doing in Christ through her. He is sending the one who will bring fulfillment to all that will receive it. This is the gospel. God understands that in all of us there is a void, a hunger, a thirst, and we try with all of our might, with all of our ingenuity, with all of our creativity to fill that void with something less glorious, including the Christmas season. Maybe this year I can make the tree look just so and I'll feel full, but you won't. Maybe this year we can sit around the table together and the candles will be burning just so and we can share our hearts and I'll feel full, but you won't and you know unless you consider Christ, what God has done in Christ to redeem people to himself and to one another. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He didn't just salve the hunger pain so much more. The hunger pain remains. The misery, the stress, the suffering, it all remains. But in the midst of it all, God gives fulfillment and joy. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment. And when we try to manufacture it ourselves, we always come up empty. It's as Fleming Rutledge brilliantly said, Advent begins where human potential ends. Right where we can do no more, which is pretty early on in the race, that's where God engages and he takes care of everything. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary gets it. This 15-year-old maiden understands this has been a part of God's plan all along, promised way back in Genesis chapter 12. <gasps> we should preach a sermon series in the book of Genesis. It would be really, really good. This has been God's plan all along that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing, the redemption of all Israel. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. After a time, Mary does, in fact, return to Nazareth. Zechariah and Elizabeth welcome their son, John the Baptizer. And Mary goes back, and Joseph voluntarily enters into all sorts of scorn and shame because this Jesus is worth it. So this final Sunday before Christmas, we've been talking about preparations. Let me just give you three quick application points or implications of how we are to prepare between now and Christmas, that we can be diligently, intentionally, and volitionally preparing. Three quick things. Number one goes like this. As you're preparing for Christmas, one of the things that we all have the opportunity, the invitation, and the obligation to do is to prepare for your own depravity. 
a right assessment of self, looking deeply into not just what you do, not just what you have done, but you're the kind of person that. It creates this inky black darkness upon which the star shines so brilliantly. Perhaps the first thing to prepare this Christmas is to accurately assess yourself and your actual life on this earth, the one thing that no amount of your busyness can redeem. We've treated busyness like it's the new justification. As long as I'm busy doing a bunch of stuff, I can feel good about myself. Fortunately, that is not the economy of heaven. What we learn from this story of Mary and the Annunciation and the Magnificat is without the incarnation of Christ, your greatest hope is who you are right now. And that is a terribly frightening thing. Without the incarnation, your greatest hope is who you are. Spiritually speaking, we all come into this world born into the backwater of sin. And God owes you and me nothing. But by grace, he rescues and he redeems sinners. We say this all the time, but not often enough. We are way worse off than we think. We're way darker, super depraved, above and beyond our comprehension. But we are way more loved than we will ever be able to imagine. So prepare for your depravity. Recognize the glory, the grandeur of God's grace. Number two, prepare for the world's disdain. Perhaps you, like many believers, adopted the path of least resistance and you don't want to make a fuss. You don't want to be one of those people who is out there talking about Jesus. Well, I don't want you to be one of those people talking about a false Jesus either. But if you're one of those people who talks about the very Son of God who is great, who is the Son of the Most High, who is the seed of David, who will sit on the throne and his kingdom will never, never end, when was the last time you busted out in praise of Jesus next to your old cousin? Maybe this is the season where you don't go on some political rant about this, that, or the other. You don't go on to some rant about some social ill or injustice or wrong because if everyone would just think like you, the world would be a better place. No, it would be a smoldering crater. But instead, to say, I just am gobsmacked that Jesus would love me, this non-player character, nobody from nowhere. Look at it. Prepare for the world's disdain when you do that. And if that occurs, praise be to God, he is worth that. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Therefore, he is king and therefore he has authority. You and I don't get to name God. You and I don't get to name Jesus, but he offers to name us. Just like with Mary, God knows every detail of our lives and he is in the process of making all things new through and in you. Spurgeon put it this way. Remember, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. We are strangers in a strange land and we will be treated as such. And when we are, may it be because of our love for the Son of God and not any other reason whatsoever. Third point that we are to prepare for. Prepare for the Lord's direction. Jesus isn't who we want him to be. Jesus is the Son of God. He is great. Jesus has plans for us. He is in the process of making all things new in and through us, whether we recognize or appreciate what God is doing in our whole sphere of influence through his indwelling spirit. 
does not mean, though, that we, since we have his direction, that our life will be predictable or safe, but it is good. In a sense, God is always leading us, just like Mary, to Bethlehem, all year long, all of our lives. See, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. There's a really fascinating thing that happens when Gabriel comes to Mary, and he says, greetings, oh, highly favored one. This very formal, rigid saying that he gives her. That expression happens only one other time in the whole of your Bible. Greetings, most favored one. And it's given by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. And Paul says it is true of every believer. Full of grace, in whom God is well pleased, the Lord is with you. Part of me thinks, well, I'm just some dude in East Texas with a mortgage trying not to get cut off on Broadway by a purple minivan. Hey, Mary was special. He hit the lottery. No, Paul says. No. You, if you are a believer, you are kekerotomene. You are most favored, highly favored among God, and the Lord is with you. It is true of every believer, just like Mary. No, we don't literally birth Messiah, of course, but rather we are the ones who are also highly favored by God, by whom and to whom he sends his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And so in a sense, this Advent season, this Christmas season, we have the opportunity to really consider and to be reminded that we are each, in a sense, the lowly manger into which the Son of God is given that he is born in our hearts. And we are walking around Bethlehem, as you might say, the house of bread, feeding a broken and hungry world. Not taking away all the pain, but offering fulfillment that the Son of God has come and that he will come again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your love of us, that you've sent your son, that you've also sent your spirit, that we get to be your people. And as we've already celebrated communion, because of the finished work of your son, we can have union with you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has somehow stumbled into a Bible church in East Texas the last Sunday before Christmas, if there's anyone that does not know you, that their only hope is their own strength and skill and talent, would you cause them to believe? Would you give them the gift of understanding, of agreement and trust that they would have faith in who you are and what you have done? For the rest of us, Father, as we continue to try and make sense of this season and all the preparations and busyness, would you help us to prepare our hearts to receive again and again and again the glory of the gospel? May that be the gift that each of us receives this Christmas season. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.